0: The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. Welcome to OPCC. Welcome to those of you joining online today. We're glad you're with us as well. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 15. We'll be in Revelation chapter 15 and 16. Let us pray. (laughs) I'm not kidding. (laughs) Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for a time to be together with the body. Thank you for the book of Revelation, all it teaches us about who you are and who we are. And in times, Lord, when things can be um, overwhelming or discouraging, you've given us this book, Lord, to point us toward you, to give us hope, to know that uh, you have a plan for the universe. I'm humbled to approach it this morning before your people, and I pray that you would do what only you can through the foolishness of preaching um, that, Lord, your wisdom would come out, Um, that you would hide me behind your cross, that you would give me liberty, that my mind, Lord, um, would work as you've designed it to, and that all that you have for your people today would be served up for them to consume, and for all of us, myself included, we'd walk away from here knowing We've heard from you, and we pray these things in the powerful name of Christ. Amen. There are some passages of the Bible that leave us speechless. As a matter of fact, sometimes you could be reading the Word, and it can cause you to question God, and why would He do what He does? Um, Sometimes... In the Old Testament, you'll read, and God says to the people of Israel that they are to wipe out an entire people group. And and you look at it, and you go, man, um, this looks really like it's lacking compassion. But he is God, and we are humans, and we can be assured that he is just, And sometimes what looks like a lack of compassion is actually compassionate. So we read a text like that, and we approach it, and we go, some people, he would say, who are unbelievers, I could never believe in a God like that. Sometimes we as believers look at it and go, well, I believe in a God like that, but this makes me very uncomfortable that he said to do that. And sometimes we, we don't have the right Context, we're not looking at something from the right perspective. So, in the case of wiping out an entire people group, let's break it down to subdivisions since we live in Overland Park. There are a lot of subdivisions. Imagine that the people here in Lions Gate were not the people of God. And of course, the people in Wellington Park, where I live, are the people of God. But just imagine that we're really close together, and the people from Lions Gate would come over and they would raid the people from Wellington Park and they would steal all of our stuff. They would take our wives and bring them back, and our children and rape our wives, maybe take our children and make them become slaves and this is the way they lived, and they thought it was okay, and they just kept doing that over and over and over, and it was just a part of how they functioned in society. Would it be a loving thing for the people of Wellington Park to say, well, it's okay. Let's just let the people in Lionsgate keep doing that. That would be the most unloving thing that we could possibly do. The people in Wellington Park, in order to do something loving, needs to protect the people that are being invaded by these other people. And that's what God had in mind there. It was an act of grace. It was an act of compassion to take care of his people because it showed the difference of what happens when a society or a group of people reject the things of God and they become evil in their nature. And nature runs its course and they are totally apart from God and all that God has commanded. Well, Revelation chapter 15 and 16 is sort of like that except for the fact that it deals with God executing wrath on the world. And so, not the most popular topic in the church today. (laughs) It deals with some really difficult things. And so what we have is God pouring out his judgment. But we have to understand that, hey man, like God is doing something here that is really compassionate, and that he has been trying to get our attention, not just us in modern day 2021 in America, but throughout history since the beginning of time. God has been telling a story, and he's been writing it down, and he has been using the people of Israel, this nation that are identified by him as the chosen people of God, to hammer this story out in time, and so that we can look at and understand who is God. What is he like? And you'll find that in Christianity, there's there's not a religion even remotely close to describing a God like the God of the Bible. It doesn't even come close. It's totally different. And so when we come to Revelation chapter 15 and 16 and we see the judgment of God poured out, it is something that has been prophesied throughout biblical history since God has been using prophets and fulfilling prophecy in order for us to be able to trust what he has written. And so some interpret chapter 15 and 16 in a lot of the book of Revelation literally. So they come at it and they read about something and they take a more literal approach. And the other school of thought is to come at it a little bit more figuratively and see all of the symbolism. Now, what's interesting is the folks who approach it more from a literal standpoint use a lot of symbology, and the people who approach it from a figurative standpoint, tend to stick more to the figurative side of it and, and understanding symbolic. So they, the the literal, the literal approach kind of dips back and forth. You say, well, which one is right? I don't know. Okay, just to be fair and and honest with you, both of them are orthodox in, in their their Christianity. So we wouldn't look at a person and how they approach the book of Revelation, whether it be literal or figurative, and say, they are, they are not part of the kingdom of Christ. Um, it is one of the most difficult books of the Bible to make interpretations on. I tend probably to fall a little bit more on the figurative side, but I'm not dogmatic about either one of them. I see a, a lot of, of what God is doing, and when I approach scripture, the way that I pray is I pray a simple prayer, and I soak in the text And in this text, I thank the Lord that I had some time off because it gave me a, a little bit more time to soak in it. But I pray a prayer like this, Lord, help me to see what you want me to see so I can say what you want me to say and we as a people can do what you want us to do. And so as I preach the word to you today, I'm not giving you this side or that side. I'm giving you what I feel like I have received from heaven based upon an interpretation that God has given me out of chapters 15 and 16 of the book of Revelation. And so you're going to have to stick with me in the beginning here because I'm going to give you some information as God has shown me some things that um, help us make an interpretation or an application from these two chapters about the wrath of God. Based off of what God has done in history, when he fulfilled the promise originally, as the story has started after creation, God made a promise to Abraham. And what he promised to Abraham is that he would become the father of many nations. And so that his seed would disperse and that he would be like the patriarch of many nations. And so Abraham um, doesn't have a son until he's very old in life. And eventually Abraham's descendants lead to a guy by the name of Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. And from Jacob's sons, we get the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of Jacob's sons' name was Joseph, and his brothers didn't like him because he had dreams that God allowed him to interpret and make interpretations of, and he sort of was a prophetic voice in the family, and they didn't like what they heard, so they sold him into slavery. And the people who purchased him took him into Egypt, and Joseph is there in Egypt, but somehow by the hand of God, sovereignly, God wanted him in Egypt. And Joseph rises to the top, and he becomes second in command to Pharaoh only. And so now, Joseph, because of his ability supernaturally that God has given him to interpret dreams, Pharaoh has a dream that is troubling him, and Joseph is able to interpret that dream and say, man, this is about a famine that is going to come upon the land. And this is what these cows are about, and these lean cows, these skinny cows, and these fat cows that eat the skinny cows. And so you can go, we'll have to read about all that, all right? It's in the book of Genesis. And so because he was able to do that, Pharaoh puts him in charge and says, you're going to run Egypt. And because of Joseph's ability to lead at this moment, Egypt becomes a very wealthy nation. It becomes a superpower under Joseph's leadership because he knew the famine was coming, and he stockpiled all the food, and people came from everywhere in order to purchase food from Egypt. And during that famine, Jacob and the rest of his sons that were not living in Egypt, Jacob thought Joseph was dead, but through a course of events, it's a very fascinating story, Jacob and his, the rest of his sons moved to Egypt, and they live in Goshen outside of Egypt, um, and they're taken care of. Well, Joseph dies, and the Jewish people at that time were numbered, they were a small family, okay? They had about 70 people. So it's like a family reunion that moved to Goshen outside of Egypt. Over the course of the next four centuries, they would grow in excess to a, of a million people. And there were different pharaohs that they served under, And by the time they get to 400 years later, there is a Pharaoh in charge who is utilizing them as slaves. And they are being used to build the nation or the empire of Egypt. And so the taskmasters are being very hard and cruel on them. And during this period, we have Moses. He is one of the babies that the Pharaoh was so worried and concerned about the Israelites And again, they were not a nation at this time. They were a people. The promise was being fulfilled through Abraham that he would make him into a father of many nations, but they they were totally unorganized. They just were a people because they were related and they were in Egypt and they weren't in the land that they were supposed to be in. And so that's where we get this talk of a promised land. And so during this time, Moses is one of the babies where Pharaoh says, man, the Israelites are multiplying too fast. We need to deal with this. And so he comes up with a plan for infanticide and they're going to throw all the Hebrew males into the Nile River and let them drown. And Moses' mother doesn't do that. She strategically puts him in a place where he's found by Pharaoh's daughter. And if you've been around church very much, you know the story. He grows up in Pharaoh's um, castle, if you will, And he is like considered a prince of Egypt until he recognizes later in life um, who he really is. And then he flees and he goes out and lives in the wilderness. The people of God are numerous. The promise of Abraham is being fulfilled. They're in excess of a million people. Moses is in the wilderness. Pharaoh is oppressing the people. God comes to Moses in the, the form of the burning bush and calls him to go into Egypt And set his people free. He said, What in the world does this have to do with Revelation? We get there. (laughs) And so Moses goes, and um, when he goes, God gives him the ability to execute supernatural, miraculous things. And we know these as the 10 plagues of Egypt. And each plague becomes more and more severe. And the plagues reveal the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. So throughout scripture, we have this thing called typology, okay? And what that means is, is there will be a historical account of something going on that tells a greater story that we can look back on and see. So for instance, David and Goliath. David is a a meek shepherd servant, tending the sheep. And he goes out and what does he do? He slays the giant. And it is a picture of Jesus, the suffering servant who comes to slay all the work of Satan on the cross. That's what that picture is about. So that story is not about, okay, I can take that and apply it to my life and I can be as powerful as David. No, that story is about Jesus is powerful over the enemy to destroy sin. Okay, Now, we can be encouraged by it, and we can see that God moves in it, but the real real meaning of it is it is a prophetic type of what Jesus would do on the cross of Calvary. Moses and Pharaoh, the same thing. Moses is a type of Christ in the Old Testament, a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. Pharaoh is a type that serves to teach us what Satan, the enemy, um, does to humanity. He binds them. He causes them to suffer. Even the people of God who are suffering now in their flesh as we're trying to walk out our obedience to Christ, we suffer under the oppression of an evil, wicked system that causes us and works against us um, in the flesh. That's why Jesus says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we deal with this stuff of temptation and so on and so forth. And so as each of these plagues are executed, they show us the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, but eventually, Pharaoh lets the people go. And it is the judgment of God falling on Pharaoh. And that judgment brought about the beginning of the nation of Israel. We call that the Exodus. They're released from captivity, and they go and they're backed up in this helpless situation with Pharaoh changing his mind and coming toward them and the Red Sea behind them. And they don't know what they're going to do. And they're, they're fearful as they know the chariots are approaching and God grants a miracle in this moment. And they have the parting of the Red Sea. And the people of Israel are able to cross the Red Sea on dry ground. And Pharaoh's army comes and attempts to cross the Red Sea as well. And what happens is as the people of Israel are in safety, the waters are allowed to come back into place, and Pharaoh's army and chariots are destroyed. And now Israel is on the front porch of the promised land. (laughs) And all of a sudden, we have the nation of Israel. Now, in time, God leads them, and on the Mount um, Sinai, God gives them the law. So Moses goes up the mountain, and God gives him the law. And he says, this is how I want you to live. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. And so what is taking place is a, a physical fulfillment of the promised land. First, the people had to turn into a large people group. Then God had to fulfill the promise of the land because he told Abraham that he was going to give him this land. And so as they come out of captivity, they receive a law. They are a theocracy. God is giving them what they need. He is the one leading them. Later, they end up with kings and so on and so forth. But at this time in history, they are being led by God. And so we have the fulfillment of the physical part of the promised land. The Israelites crossed the Red Sea to enter the promised land. Then we know that through the lineage of Abraham, that the Messiah would come. Someone from the seed of David. And eventually, as we trace this through biblical history, that the Messiah would come, and what he would do, he would come through this nation, and he would make a way for the promised life. So you have the promised land that the Israelites would enter into, and then you have the promised life. And so when the Messiah comes, he is to come, and he would come, and he would make a way for the promised life. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And so Jesus comes through this nation, and the resurrection of Christ after the death on the cross is the Red Sea miracle of the New Testament. The Red Sea parts, they go into the promised land, physical Jesus comes, he parts the sea of separation spiritually because all men are separated from God and by his crucifixion on the cross of Calvary and rising from the dead, he parts the sea that separates us from God. And we have a Red Sea miracle that we spiritually can be redeemed and made right with the, with the Lord. And so we have a spiritual resurrection. It says that um, every man is dead in his sins and trespasses. But when he is made alive in Christ, he is what Jesus described to Nicodemus. He is born again. He he is raised to life spiritually. So we go physical, now we're at spiritual. There is a spiritual resurrection. We're now living in the church age, and we're living the spiritual promised life. So the blessings of God are available to us as we walk in obedience the Lord Jesus Christ and what he calls us to. That's why it is so important to be in the word, to be a person of prayer, so that you can hear what the Lord wants you to do, and you can walk out your obedience, and you can live the promised life spiritually. This all will lead to a physical resurrected new creation. All that was lost at the fall will be restored physically by Jesus for his people. And so what we have is physical, spiritual moving back to physical. And so that's why they missed Jesus as the Messiah, because the prophecies about the Messiah contained all of this stuff about he will come as a conquering warrior king. But they missed all of the parts about he will come as a suffering servant. They didn't realize that, that the Messiah would come twice. And so Jesus has already come the first time, and he leads us into the church age of which we are living now, and Jesus will come again, and what he does to come the second time is to fulfill the physical part of the promise. Physical land, they conquer and they have. It brings about the Messiah. They go in and out of captivity through this time. They are helpless. They are being oppressed still by a Pharaoh, Satan, who's working through all of these evil functions of his demonic host that he has, by the sovereignty of God, is allowed to have. And he oppresses his people by the people of God by causing temptation. And so we wrestle um, ag- not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, the word says, and we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit spirit. But the oppressor oppresses us according to the flesh. But the more that we walk out the obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and the more that we know about the word of God and the more that we're able to to live the life that the Lord wants us to live, the more the spiritual blessing can fall on us. Revelation chapter 15 and 16 explains how Jesus will return it back to a physical universe. Okay? Now it's uh, 1045, and I haven't even cracked one verse yet. But this is important, okay? And so I'm going to read through this, and I am not going to try to make an interpretation on every single judgment that comes out of this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, we're going to walk through it, and I'm going to give you what the Lord has shown me, and hopefully it's encouraging to you. But, but what we're reading. Is, is going to be about the beginning of the end. How Jesus, when he returns, how he corrects all that is messed up in the world. He says, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. Okay, so these are believers. These are resurrected believers. And we know that because Jesus, when he is described in heaven, he's normally described as standing giving us an indication that he is in his resurrected form. They're standing beside the sea that is burning with fire. They held harps given them by God, and they sang the song of God's servant, Moses and the Lamb. This is why I took so much time to explain all that stuff about Moses. These people are singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked and I saw in heaven the temple. That is the tabernacle of the covenant law and it was open. This word tabernacle is the same tent that was used before they actually built Solomon's temple, which was a physical temple that was in one location. This was the tent uh, uh, um, tabernacle that they would pack up and they would move as God led them through the wilderness wanderings over a 40-year period. And within that temple was the holy of holy place, was the ark of of the covenant that contained the um, law that God gave to Israel that made them a nation. Okay, And some other things that, that reminded them of the miraculous hand of God moving in their lives. And so when it talks about this, it's talking about a very holy and significant place. And there is, it is a shadow, it is a copy of what is in heaven. And it's telling us that this is the presence of God in this temple in heaven. And it says that out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. And they were dressed in clean, shining linen, and wore golden sashes around their chest. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So so what is all this talk of seven? Seven is the complete number in apocalyptic literature. It is the perfect number. Six is one short of seven. It is the imperfect number. So you have seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Seven, seven, seven. Woo, jackpot, right? Uh, (laughs) And you have six, six, six. And so 666 is just a number to describe for us that it falls short of God. It is the image of the beast. It is the number of the beast because it identifies anybody who rejects the things of God and chooses the things of the beast. And, and so we'll talk more about the beast and the, and the false prophet and so on and so forth here in a moment. And so a lot of you are going, man, this is my first week here. I feel like I'm missing a lot. You're gonna have to go back and watch everything from the last year, okay? <laughs> Sorry. And so, so the number seven... I see it as indicative of just being the complete, like it is the wrath of God. It's coming from that holy of holy place. It's filled with smoke. And that tells us this is coming from God himself. He says, then I heard, and and they're they're told to to go and, and release. It says, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. And the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land. And ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Now, this is why this becomes important. You're going to see that these plagues are very similar to the plagues that happened to Egypt. Under Moses' leadership, there was a plague of sores. Only the Egyptians are the ones who got the sores. None of the Israelites did. It was targeted only at the Egyptians. In this case, it will be all unbelievers. Now, do I believe it is a literal sore? I don't know. I it could be, it could not be. I'm not real. Some people say it's for sure a literal. People are going to break out in sores if they don't know the Lord. Um, I tend to believe it's just going to be a the first part of an incredible amount of suffering and oppression. And so he pours out his bowl. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. Again, a disruption of the economy, because the sea is so important for that, and we see that as all the ships are outside on the coast of America, the sea is, is, is still an important part of our, our society and economy. And then the third of the angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, you are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were. Now notice this, it usually says you who are and who were and who were to come, or who are to come. It's not saying are to come because he's here. So we're at the end. We're at the last part. He says, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets and have given them blood to drink as they deserve. Okay, so he's saying, look, man, all of these people are suffering at the hand of your wrath because they've been causing your people to suffer. And so we have a picture of the enemy and all that is wicked that has been causing the suffering of the people of Christ throughout the centuries, throughout the ages, are going to go through their own suffering in the future. And he said, and I heard the altar respond. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. And they were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. So see, this is this this looks really bad. Like it looks like how could God do this? But really, it's showing a picture that God is like He's long suffering. He He would that all men would repent and come to Him, but as these judgments come, even though they will acknowledge they are coming from God, they are so proud in their position, they refuse to repent. Just like Pharaoh's heart just kept getting harder and harder and harder, so would those who reject the Lord Jesus. This is the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. And people gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. So incredible oppression, incredible suffering, things get really bad. And we will see as we trace out in chapter 17, 18, and 19, we will see that there will be an incredible disruption to a worldwide on a worldwide economic scale, things will fall apart. And it's going to be bad for all of humanity. And some believe that the church will be raptured out of that. And some believe that the church goes through part of that. You say, what do you believe? I believe that I'm going to be with Jesus one day, (laughs) okay? I I, I probably, I don't think the church gets raptured out. I I don't know, I go back and forth on this, okay? I wouldn't be surprised if I am. But it wouldn't surprise me if the church goes through suffering because there's so much talk in the Bible about us going through suffering. It says that we're never more like Christ than when we suffer for his sake. And we see that these people who are being, the punishment is being executed in a lot of these systems because they are causing pain and suffering to the people of God, just like the people of God were being caused pain and suffering under um, Pharaoh's leadership. But they refused to repent for what they had done. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs, and they came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. What in the world is that? Well, this is like, so remember in symbology, symbolically in apocalyptic literature, Jesus comes and he has a flaming sword coming out of his mouth. And it is described as the word of God. So the flaming sword is truth. The impure spirits that are described as frogs in to these people, frogs still even, like you see a picture around Halloween of a witch and what well, she got, a frog. She's throwing it in a, she's cooking up a concoction. So we still kind of think of frogs, uh, frogs that way. So they were just a way to describe what was evil, okay? And they're coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Who are these people? The dragon is, is Satan who is behind all of wickedness. The uh, beast is the political evil system that is now allowed to be in complete control. And the false prophet is the um, evil, wicked religious system that all are speaking words of deception. That's what's coming out of their mouth. That's causing people to be deceived. This is why the scripture talks so much about understanding and knowing what you believe and why you believe what you believe and understanding who Christ is and not just being caught up in some religious experience but going to a place where you can be instructed in the word of God and you can be confident in what you believe. It's because there will be a worldwide um, deception that will be allowed and it will be a way in which the world is being purged and the sheep are being separated from the goats and God is identifying and showing to everyone who truly does belong to him. And so that's what this is about, is this, like, even the enemy himself, the devil, he's God's devil, but he is described as the prince of the power of the air. So during the church age, he is allowed to um, do what he does and manipulate people, and Jesus is calling people unto himself. And so at this point, when this bowl is uh, poured out, then these things begin to get disrupted and fall. And And right after that, this is what we get. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. And then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake, the great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. And God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people and they cursed God on account of the plagues of hell because the plague was so terrible. So as I approach these, here's what I have kind of come to believe is that these bold judgments, these trumpet judgments and the seal judgments are all the same. They are being unpacked in greater detail because as I study the Old Testament minor prophets, it seems to be that they repeat themselves and they will say something, they will give a prophecy and then a chapter or two later, they will go and give the same prophecy but in greater detail. And so I believe what is happening in, in, in all of those is we have 777 and they are a complete picture of how God is going to function from the time Christ rose from the dead until the time he returns. I believe the first five books are happening during the church age. That there will be times of oppression that will increase and we will go through difficult times, and there will be times where it lets up. There will be times where it increases, and there will be times where it lets up. You trace back through church history, and you will see that this is exactly what happens. When we get to the last um, uh, two bowls, then we see that this is the time of Christ. This is why there is an interlude here. Look, I come like a thief, and Christ comes, and the last two bowls are poured out, and we have a major shift that takes place in all of creation. All right, so let me give you the takeaways real quick. What is this? You look at this, you go, okay, what do I take away from this? How how does this help me live this week? I mean, man, I I just had a good time with my family. I come to church, man, and he's talking about the earthquakes and Armageddon and frogs coming out of people's mouths. (laughs) and It's like, what in the world? Well, I didn't write it. I'm just preaching about it. Here's, Here's the deal. The first thing that's really encouraging out of chapter 15, verse 2, the sea will be no more. Okay? The sea was talked about early on um, in chapter 4, I think, or 5 of Revelation. But this time the sea is described as a a sea of glass glowing with fire and believers are standing in the NIV, it says, beside. In other translations, it says on top and the best interpretation is probably on top. And the sea surrounds the throne of God. God is physically unapproachable, and that's why there is a sea. There is a sea of separateness from the temple that is showing where God in all of his glory and his presence is. The angels are coming out of that temple to execute God's wrath, and we hear a a loud voice coming out of that place. God is physically unapproachable by people. Spiritually, we may approach him. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews says that we, because because of the blood of Christ, may boldly approach the throne of Christ. but that is in a spiritual context. I can pray to God, I can get on my face, and I can ask God and, uh, to help me in circumstances. I can ask him to help me to witness people. I can ask him when I'm worried about something to bring peace into my life. I can boldly approach the throne of God spiritually, but not physically. This will change when the judgment of God is complete. Revelation chapter 21, when we get to the end here, uh, and a couple of chapters later, verse one says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. The sea is gone. And so we're headed toward this moment as we look toward the judgment of God falling on the earth. It should make us feel very concerned and urgent about people who may not know the Lord people who may not be in a relationship and understand what the gospel is all about, that we are all sinners who stand in need uh, of the mercy and grace of God, and that we all have a free will, and if we are going to become right with God, the only way to do that is to humble ourselves before the God of the universe, who's left us this incredibly good um, message of hope and truth, and we become right with him, and and so we should be urgent about sharing that message with others and helping them to understand what it is that Jesus taught and making disciples. disciples that go out there for and make disciples. But we should also be encouraged because sometimes we get down. It's hard to do that. It's hard to to do the work of the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ from time to time. It can feel overwhelming. It can feel like we're being oppressed. Sometimes people reject it. But we have to understand, man, People reject Jesus all the time, and when they reject us, they're just rejecting Jesus, and we're called to suffer alongside of him, but we need to be reminded that there's coming a day that there will be no more sea, and right now I can boldly approach the throne of grace spiritually, but one day I will boldly be able to uh, approach the throne of God physically. That's the picture that is being painted here. Here's the second takeaway. See, we see what has changed spiritually will change physically in the future. And then that will cause us to sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. This is a song of deliverance. Once they crossed the Red Sea, wrote, Moses wrote this song and it's recorded in scripture and he sings it. And the Jewish people sang it often at different times. It is a song of deliverance. It is the song here, though, not only of Moses, it is the song of Moses and the lamb. Why is it the song of Moses and the lamb? Well, we know that in Revelation, Jesus is the lamb of God. Like, he is the lamb that is slain um, in order to redeem people. It, it, the song of Moses and the lamb is being sung because it is joining the physical with the spiritual. The promised land with the promised life are coming together. And this is all forecast as what's going to happen when the wrath of God is poured out upon the planet. And so these two things come together and we see a rejoining and a writing of all that has been lost. And in that moment, here's your third takeaway, Jesus will expose people for who they are. Verse 15 says, look, I come like a thief, blessed is the one who stays awake and remains closed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. It will be a surprise. When Jesus returns, he will come like a thief. Jesus taught this when he taught himself in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 24, we have this famous sermon called the Olivet Discourse that is about the return of Christ and the end of the age. The disciples ask him to explain some things to them. And he says in verse 42 of that chapter, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you all must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. There are many other passages in the Bible. The apostle Paul teaches this. The apostle Peter teaches this. We see it in multiple places. People at this moment will be surprised and it will either be, uh, they will either be people that who are exposed as people who belong to Christ and are covered by the blood of the lamb, or they will be filled with shame because they know they have rejected him. And this is why that says all the nations will worship God. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That doesn't mean that everybody will know Jesus is Lord. It just means there's coming a time, and when we get to the end, that everyone will do this. And this exposure will expose, who are the sheep that belong to the Lord? Who are the goats that don't belong to him? And you say, man, like, (laughs) I, like, I know this is a little difficult. But you need to understand that the people you're interacting with, in the eyes of God, they are either sheep or goats. They either know him or they're not, they don't know him. They are either righteous because of the blood of Christ covering their sins, or they are wicked. And if we don't start thinking about that, it doesn't impact how we live. It doesn't impact how we interact with people. It doesn't impact our calendars. It doesn't impact and motivate us to pray because we only think that life is about me. And that is idolatry, the very thing that the book of Revelation says we are never to do. And so we need to be shook up sometimes and understand this great loving God that we serve, there is a picture of him that he's coming to bring judgment on the unbelieving world. And as his children, the chosen people who have um, been blessed because of the new covenant, and we have been grafted in, and we know him, we are to be about the work of the king of going there and making disciples of all nations. And so people will be either exposed as covered by the lamb or filled with shame. Now we need not fear if you're covered by the lamb. So there's nothing to be afraid of. Like we look at this and I'm talking about it and it, it sounds overwhelming. If you know the Lord, there's nothing overwhelming about this at all. It should either, it should create two responses in you. If you know the Lord, urgency and hope. If you don't know the Lord, it should, conv- it can, it should produce conviction And you probably feel a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit of shame. Why is that? It's because you're being oppressed by the enemy. You are still a slave spiritually, and you haven't been resurrected spiritually. You are a dead man walking, and the Lord wants to resurrect your soul. So sometimes during the foolishness of preaching, like I'm doing, a person might come to spiritual life because they recognize that they are a sinner who stands in need of God's grace. They confess that to the Lord. They ask him to forgive him and they are born again spiritually. And now God lives inside of them. They have experienced the first resurrection and are prepared to face the second resurrection. Here's the next takeaway. Armageddon is where things shift. Verse 16 says, they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. This is an area, like you could do a study on this, uh, uh, about this region, but many significant things happened to Israel in this place. Like kings very influential and loving kings. King Josiah was slayed in this area. Many different things happened in, uh, like throughout the history of Israel at this place of Armageddon. And it is a place where things shift. And so this is the place right now, what is happening and why Armageddon is identified right here is there is a major, this, not a major shift, this is the last shift in the created order. Things will shift dramatically. The old will make way for the new. And so, what are we to do? We are to remain faithful until it is done. Now, this is where it gets really cool, I think. Verse 17 says this The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne that is, God saying, It is done. The voice of God proclaims it is done. It is the word genomai in the Greek, and it means complete. It is the final consummation of judgment. It is the converse of Christ's words on the cross. From the cross, Jesus said seven different things. And the one thing that he said at the end is to tell us die. It is finished, paid in full. Redemption has been purchased. And so that means that I can now know the Lord because to Tei, he has paid for me. He has paid the penalty of my sin, and when I place my faith and my trust in Him, I know Him as personal savior, and I am born again to Tei. Geiah here is God saying, it is the end of fallen creation as we know it in order to begin creation as it should be. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. So this is what we're headed toward. And, and, and somehow people in the church believe that when one of their uh, uh, brothers or sisters or mother or father dies, they become angels. You do not become an angel when you die. If you are a human being, you will always be a human being that's what you are. The angelic world is a different creation than the human world, just like the animal cre- uh, world is a different creation than humanity. We don't become angels and we are not going to float around for the rest of uh, eternity or whatever that is, like some dressed up angel with wings on his back and singing kumbaya. That's not what the picture of Christianity is. The picture of Christianity is everything that we love about this life that is broken and messed up and fallen will be fixed to a a place of perfection. And those who have not rejected Christ will live in that place of perfection forever and ever and ever and ever. And so that's where we're headed. And and so we look at this and we go, man, what are we to do? We are to remain faithful until the old gives way to the new. What is the big idea? The big idea is stay soft toward the things of the Lord. That's it, man. Like you got to stay soft toward the things of the Lord. That's why you got to be in the Bible. If you're not in the Bible, you're going to get hard toward the things of the Lord. You're not in the Bible, it's not going to make any difference how you treat your wife. You'll just get harder and harder and harder. And you'll be okay with the way you talk to her. Or you'll be okay with the way you talk to your husband. You'll just have a hard heart and it won't matter to you. But if you're in the word, man, the Holy Spirit will get a hold of you. And he will quicken you. And he will show you that you are getting out of line here. And your heart will be soft toward the things of Jesus. And you'll say something to your husband or your, or your um, uh, wife or to your parents. Amen. And your heart will be soft. And you'll get alone and you'll think, why why did I sound that way? And you will repent because your heart is soft toward the Lord. And you will think about what you said to a co worker at work that was rude. And you'll get in the word, and man, the Lord will show that to you, and you will repent. Instead of letting your heart get hard and say, Well, he deserved it. He was acting like a jerk. He will march right up in there and say, Man, I'm sorry for the way that I talked to you. And that guy will go, Who treats people Who does that? Not proud people, but the humble follower of Jesus does it all the time when his heart is soft. You see, we keep our hearts soft toward the Lord. The plagues revealed Pharaoh's hard heart, and the last judgment does the same thing. So it will reveal whose hearts are soft toward the things of Jesus. Who knows Jesus and who doesn't? And those who don't know Jesus, their hearts will just get harder and harder and harder. And it will be more and more difficult to reach them because their hearts will become so calloused and hard. And so what I do daily is I pray that my heart would stay soft. I pray for my children every day Lord, keep their hearts soft and tender toward you and your word. May they have a desire to run to you in obedience. And that is the key to living a life that is blessed to the Lord. And so we look at this, and it is a hard thing. And I would just say to you, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. All right? I'm not worried about it. I'm looking forward to it. The Lord is going to fix this mess. And sometimes I get overwhelmed by the mess. Sometimes I get, watch the news and I get overwhelmed. What's wrong? And I have to be reminded, man, I just got to be faithful with what the Lord has called me to do. And he will fix the mess. Sometimes I get frustrated with myself because I trip and mess up and stumble and sin. And I repent and I have to be reminded, man, I'm walking with the Lord spiritually, but one day this sin thing is going to be removed and it's no longer going to be a struggle and I'm going to walk with him physically and I'm going to walk with you guys. And that's what the church is about. That's what this body is about is us reaching people and letting them see the truth of the gospel, man. That is the the story of of the creator of the universe to all humanity. It's not like God wants. It's not like God is like looking forward and going, oh, I want to crush you. He would that all men would be saved, but he gives us a free will. And if we reject that, if he's going to remain true to who he is, just like the people in Wellington Park need to come over and do something to the people who are raiding them, God has to do something against wickedness that will not be covered by the perfect sacrifice that he made himself. C.S. Lewis says it best all who are in hell deserve to be there. And they know it. They made the choice to reject Jesus. And let that be a word that like quickens us and goes, man, one, like it's humbling because I I look and go, man, I, I know the Lord. And I'm not really sure how all that happened. I'm just thankful that I know him. Like I'm not better than anybody. Matter of fact, there's really a lot of messed up stuff about me. But I know Jesus, and I'm thankful for that. And if you know Jesus, man, everything's gonna be fine. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I don't know what the Lord may have said to you today in this word, but just wanna give you a moment. I'm gonna turn the service over to Sean. If you, if you wanna come forward and pray, man, like you could use this stage as an altar. Maybe you wanna lay something down. Um, if you want to pray in your chair, that's fine too. Just want you to have the freedom to do what the Lord leads you to do. But I think it'd be good for us to just take a moment and kind of think about this. Like, where, like where is my heart? Like, is my heart soft toward the things of the Lord? Do I need to repent of some things? Do, do I even know Jesus? Do I need to confess to the Lord that I don't know him and ask him to forgive me? And I would encourage you, man, like, to let me know about the decisions that you make today so that I can hold you up before the Lord and and, and join you in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. I pray, Lord, that as we sit with you just for a moment, that you would just speak to us about your desires, where we're at. You would help us to be vulnerable with you. And you would help us, Lord, to walk out in obedience what you have called us to. I'm thankful for your word and the incredible story that it tells. And I pray for your blessing upon this body of people that I know you love, Lord, and I love. Thank you for them. Have your way. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.